Acts chapter 20, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. So we are in Acts 27, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And God's word says this. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind that they they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, 
kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. Help us as we look at this. We know that your Holy Spirit is real and present, and we pray for the Holy Spirit's help as we interact with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I saw one of these lists in one of these papers. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it could have been, if I remember right, it was a Wall Street Journal where every weekend they list the five, they have some you know, expert that lists the five top books about certain things. And this one was listing the five top books about sailing and sea adventures. And he included this section of Acts in there. And as I read about this section, uh, they say there is nothing at all like it in all of ancient literature and history at that time. Uh, for one, it had to be Luke writing it because they said it's written with such precision that a first-hand person had to do it, but it's not written in very technical, nautical language. And so it was a, a non-sailor, but somebody who was there and saw it. And people look at it, people who don't even think the Bible is God's word, look at this section, they say, wow, we can learn a lot about conditions then. Uh, we look at it through the eyes of Christians, and we say, wow, it's wonderful literature, it's a thrilling story, we can see ourselves in the text, if we were good enough movie makers, we'd make a movie about this, but we also see it and say, this is God's word that is here for a reason. And this morning, I want us to interact with it as wonderful literature, but if you stop there, you're missing something. This is God's word for us today. What is there to learn about God and about us and about our our lives from this text? You'll notice if you've been here for a a few weeks, we jumped ahead two chapters. Uh, That's not just to finish Acts by the end of the year, though that might happen. But the two chapters in between are more trials of Paul, more of his conversion experience recounted to somebody else, and we've covered a lot of these things, even those texts, as we've gone through it. That's an important part of Scripture, uh, chapters 24 and 25 and 26 of Acts. But here we are, seeing Paul finally a prisoner on his way, as God promised, to Rome. Uh, this morning, uh, there's a, I have one big idea that, that, that just shines through in this text. I hope we see that. And then there's one analogy uh, to our lives today. So that's where we're going. The big idea is this. Get this. When God makes a promise, he is powerful enough to keep his word, no matter what forces are aligned, to try to make him a failure. God being God, when God makes a promise, no matter what stacks up against God, God will not fail. God made a promise. Now sometimes, like I learned early on on the the older two kids, maybe I didn't learn, but I tried to learn. You make a promise to your kids, and then things happen. I'm thinking, it's not in my notes, but I'm thinking of that movie, the Robin Williams movie, Hook, 
where, where Robin is, uh, he's Peter Pan as an adult, and there's a scene on the plane, uh, and this was happening in those days, uh, uh, the junk bond days, back when they filmed the movie in the 90s. And, and, and he says, Peter Pan, the adult Peter Pan says to his son, because he's always letting him down, and he says, my word is my bond, and the kid says, yeah, junk bonds. And I think a lot of us, uh, our promises are good intentions, and we mean it. They're not lies when we tell them, hopefully. But you kind of learn to hedge your bets. Yeah, kids, we will if. Yeah, as long as. And you throw all these things in there. God makes promises. And God can make an unequivocal promise. And God keeps his promises. Uh, if that's what you take from the sermon this morning, then you're on your way. You've got what you, what you need the most especially if you then look in the Bible and you see some of the promises that God makes. I love these promises. Okay, first of all, God's promise to Paul was back in Acts 23. Acts 23, 11. Remember, Paul wanted so bad to get to Rome, to the seat of culture, the seat of the world, and he wanted to share the good news about Jesus Christ in Rome with those people. He appealed to Caesar. I'm going to Rome. And when it looked like he had been arrested and he wasn't going to get there, remember back in Acts 23, we, we stopped and paused at that, where in 23.11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God is a promise-making God. And God can do that without hedging his bets. He didn't say, unless the uh, Jews in the temple tear you limb from limb, or unless uh, Felix decides to free you, unless the ship comes and you're on it and it's in a storm and you die. No, God makes a promise. God keeps his promises. What are some promises that we know that God has made? I just, right in the sermon, I just said, I'll just take a couple of them off the top of my head. I love this one. John 6, 37. This is God the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Have you come to Jesus? He will never cast you out. There is nothing you can do. You didn't save yourself, and you can't unsave yourself. God is the Savior God is the keeper. I will never cast you out. If you're a Christian, uh, you're probably going to go through some, some times of doubt and dark times. You don't? I'm happy for you. I wish that was my life. But most of us, it's not. We struggle. We wonder. And to say, and to say God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, his word is his bond, and it's not junk bonds. Wow. Here's another one. This is Jesus. Uh, Here's a good man. If you're doing a funeral service for a believer, what a a word to have. The promise that Jesus made to his disciples. He's been telling them he's going to go away. Pretty soon their world is going to get rocked. He's going to get arrested. He's going to get mocked. He's going to get crucified. He's going to get put in in the tomb. He's going to rise again. Their hopes are going to... It's just like rising and falling, rising and falling. And then he's going to go away at the ascension. 
and be without, and just think about the, the rises and falls. It's like watching a, a ball game, and, and if you're really invested in your team. You know, me and my brother tweeting yesterday back and forth through the Iowa Hawkeyes versus Minnesota, and, and it's a, a way to connect. And, and boy, there's ups and downs, and there's good, and there's bad, and there's all these things. And all of a sudden, it looks so bad because Jesus rose from the grave, and they established that it really was him. And the next thing you know, he's leaving again. Listen to this promise that Jesus made. John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What a promise from God. Uh, God makes his promises. God keeps his promises. Four more, just like in quick succession at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible. Uh, I am coming soon. It's Revelation 3.11. Revelation 22 in verses 7, again in 12 and in 20. God makes promises. There are so many promises. Uh, sometimes I've given out, and I've, I've wavered on this, I love these little things. There's like a little, like a little promise Bible. And all it has is the promises. And, and I give it out with the qualifier. I say, this isn't the whole Bible. But right now, you seem to be just uh, bearing the weight of a heavy load. Grab this promise Bible and just look at all the promises God has made in Scripture. And it's good to have a collection of God's promises. And they are good. And they are sincere. And not only that, they are as good as gold. They are true. They are solid because they are given from God to God's people. God makes promises without qualifiers and he keeps promises. And here, Paul on this ship was counting on God to keep his promise. Now, in this section that we didn't read, uh, the first part of, of uh, Acts 27, we see Paul on this ship. Paul may be one of just three Christians that we know of. Luke would have been there because it's a first-person account. A man named Aristarchus was on that ship with him. And you see Aristarchus about four or five times throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul, I think it's in Romans where Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. We don't think he was a prisoner at this time, but he's there. Otherwise, 276 people. Some translations say 76. Most of the reliable ones say 276. Maybe some scribe, middle of the night, forgot the two or whatever, and that's how some, a couple of the texts have that way. But the reliable ones talk about the 276 people. And here's three. And here's a promise to Paul. Paul knows God well enough. Paul knows that somehow he's going to get to Rome. But he's advising the centurion. So on this ship, you had a centurion, you had a ship's owner, you had a captain of the ship, and Paul advises, this is 27, 9 through 11, uh, since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship 
than to what Paul said. We would have done well to listen to Paul. It was a time after uh, the fast had happened. I was thinking of Gordon Lightfoot. I'm thinking of ship stuff. Thought of the movie A Perfect Storm, and I thought of Gordon Lightfoot's uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And you know, in the peg leg, they call Gitchigumi and the Chippewa and down. And uh, the legend is said that it never gives up its dead when the gales of November come early. It's the wrong time for sailing, in other words. And this was the wrong time for sailing. Paul had been on this, uh, on this Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, I think it's later in the sermon, if I, uh, but, but I'll, I'll say it here. Eleven times it talks about him sailing on this. Uh, people have looked up and logged in. They said he traveled about 3,500 miles or, or whatever their nautical, whatever it was to, to measure. He was the most experienced sailor, except for the actual sailors, perhaps. But he knew more than the centurion, and he warned them, listen, this is the wrong time to be sailing. But you know what? They went ahead anyway. And here they ran into this trouble. I wrote, uh, we would do well to follow God's laws. Paul followed God's moral laws, but there are also natural laws to follow. You don't say, well, I believe God uh, said this, so I'm going to go... uh, you know, jump off this 20-story building, I believe, like that movie Groundhog Day where, where he finally tests to see if he's really going to wake up the next day to the same song, and, and he does things that just end his own life because he knows it's going to be a repeating loop. Paul still, although Paul believed God's promise, Paul still paid attention to the laws of this earth, uh, to the laws that God had designed, these laws of nature. Uh, gravity is a, a natural law things like that that are, are, are there. We would do well to pay attention to both God's moral law and the laws of nature. I was thinking of my college classmate way back when down in Pensacola 30 years ago that says, Dave, you drive like a Calvinist. <laughs> he was a little scared. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not trying to drive like a Calvinist. I'm just maybe not a good driver at this stage in my life. But I was just taking my chances and trusting God, you know, uh, big city. Roads are different in Pensacola than they are in Iowa. I'm, I'm telling you that. Um, you pay attention to the laws of the road. This was not a case of Paul doubting God by giving this advice. Don't sail. The ship could be lost. Lives could be lost. There's an Old Testament story that talks about a man who trusted God with everything, believed God's promise, and yet still did something totally contrary to to nature because he trusted God. And that was when Abraham, who promised God his son, Isaac, and Isaac was a miracle child, a child of promise, and yet God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. And Abraham, in this case, because he knew it was God speaking to him, went ahead with it. Even though it did not make sense that God would give him a son promised and then take that son. Why would he do that? Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God gives his promises. God keeps his promises. It can seem as bleak as it did to Abraham, but God even gives us the faith to trust God through this uh, this walk that we have. God is the promise-making and the promise-keeping God. At the appropriate time, ship was in trouble. Fourteen days without food. Fourteen days of fighting on this rickety boat. And you read descriptions of what happens at sea. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. God repeated his promise again to Paul. Verses 21 through 26. They'd been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Sometimes because of our frailness, God lovingly comes to us and reminds us and repeats to us what he's already promised us. That's not because God is deficient and God has to re-up his promise, but because we are people that need to hear God and continually need to hear God. And God loves us enough to do that. God is the God of where? Is God the God of the sea? Is God the God of the land? Is God God that just lives inside of his church buildings and he's here hoping you'll come so he can see you every week? Is God the God of out there? Abishek and Tina get ready to go back to, to visit India and then move to Boston for their job. Do they have to cut a deal with a different God? They have to hope that their God they're worshiping in Danbury uh, will be with them there or, or, or he has a treaty, some kind of a, a, of a situation. No, God is the God of everywhere. God is the God of everywhere. I would like you, and I hardly ever have you ask you guys to do this, but I want you to, to turn, if you would, to Psalm 139 and just see this said again so explicitly that God is the God of everywhere. Remember Jonah running from God on the ship, and they had to toss him over the ship. God was there on the ship. God was there in the whale, or in the big fish. God was there in Nineveh. God is the God of everywhere. Listen to David talking in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God, you know what I'm doing at every moment. You even know my thoughts in my head for, from where you are. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God is the God of everywhere. Listen to the next stanza. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, hey, I just got to wait till night, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where can you go to get away from God? And why would you want to anyway, the kind of God that we have? He even goes back into when you were in your mother's womb. Listen to this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Even when you were a baby, you were alive and your heart was beating and and all of it was coming together and you had a a shoe size and you had fingerprints that were yours. You had DNA that was yours. Even in the womb, he was there. Think about that. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You cannot cannot end your life any earlier than God wants it to end. You cannot keep yourself alive longer than God wants it to be alive. God is God. And so when God can make a promise, you can trust it because it's God. A promise made, a promise kept. I was thinking in the Old Testament, a promise. Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls repeated in a famous sermon at the start of the book of Acts. Acts 2.21 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Promises made. Promises as good as kept. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. Because it's God making the promise. Promise was kept because Jesus was tempted, yet without sin promise was kept because God's wrath that we deserved was poured out on his son instead of us, his people. At great cost, God saved us. He kept his promise. Understand that. That's the thing. Take that away with you this morning. God makes promises unequivocally. God can keep them. By very definition, he's God. He can do that. And he wants to do that. Now, I want you to look at this incident as an extended application for us where we live in our lives. Uh, Where we live, it applies to us because we live where there's a God. So it already applies. Not saying that none of the first stuff doesn't apply. That applies. But think of, of, of our life and think of us as Christians. How do we live as Christians in a world such as ours or as Paul's? And I want you to think of yourself even uh, 
like Paul in this story, this true story, this incident that happened. Natural born an enemy of God. Boy, he was religious, knew his Bible, the Bible they had that day, the Old Testament. He knew it inside and out, and he was a natural born enemy of God. And he was killing Christians, remember? And then he was saved by God. He was a a, a beneficiary of God's grace. And if you're a Christian, uh, you were naturally born an enemy of God. And God saved you. And God gave you these couple of gifts. He gave you repentance. He gave you faith. And he saved you. And here you are. And he's made these promises. Now imagine yourself as you go through this earth. This temporary earth. You're sailing on a ship that's overwhelmingly populated by non-believers. And maybe the percentages are 273 to 3. Could be. I don't know how, who's, who's a believer. It's, it's, it's above my pay grade to, to know that. I, don't, I can't look at a person and say, you're saved, you're not, you're, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. I don't know what God's doing, what God's in the process of doing, what God will do. Uh, I look at everybody as a, as a potential brother or sister in Christ, even if they're denying God at the time, because I don't know what God's going to do in their life. I just pray for him. But here's Paul on this ship. Overwhelmingly populated by non-believers. Jesus did say, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to heaven. We know Aristarchus was there. We know Luke was there. Otherwise, it seems like no one. Some people on that ship were kindly disposed to Paul. This centurion, uh, Julian, I think it was John Stott in his commentary goes, man, the more you read about this guy, uh, the more you like him. And there are people, not every single person on the ship says, ooh, Paul's a Christian, we're going to kill him, we hate him because he's a Christian. No, they're living their life uh, just like Paul's living his life. And Julian, the captain, was predisposed to Paul. Saved his life even, said don't kill all the prisoners. Why? Because he wanted to save Paul's life. Some people are kindly disposed to you in this world, even if they're not believers. Understand that. Others may be enemies in this world, though there's no account in this case in acts of personal animosity toward Paul. Some are willing to casually kill you. They don't care if you're alive or dead. They're casually going to kill you and would or not mind if you died to save their own skin. These guards when they reached the land and they said, we got to kill all these prisoners. It wasn't that they hated the prisoners. It's that in those days, if you were a guard working for the Roman government and you had a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, you were going to lose your own life. And we see that throughout Acts. Uh, The Philippian jailer, he was going to commit suicide because he thought the prisoners all escaped. Remember, and Paul said, no, don't. That's from history. Uh, It's not that they hated Paul and the prisoners. It's that they loved themselves. You know, I, I'm not a fan of, of, of the whole cancel culture thing, but at least they're not physically killing people yet, but they would have done that there. Cancel them out. Their lives mean nothing as long as my life can be something. There's a shared suffering among Christians and non-Christians on this boat. Uh, there was danger There was no food. There was a threat. And we have in common with all people uh, the threat. Nuclear war. If a bomb goes off, 
if somebody uh, knocks down a, a, a tower or something and, and whoever's in there, uh, you're not saved. They don't say, well, we're going to target these and ta- target these. We're all in this together in a lot of things in this earth. A pandemic. Okay? Shared suffering. Your voice as a Christian, even when you tell the truth to people and give good advice, is not always heard or heeded. Paul told the truth. Paul was an expert sailor. He knew he could read the, the signs. He'd been out there on the boats. He said we shouldn't sail. Uh, he told the truth. They sailed. And just as he said, it happened. In our analogy, then, on our ship, this ship of the world, we who read our Bibles and pray, we who have communication with God, do have a right and obligation to speak up and warn, even if it's not heeded. Tell the truth about what you see happening in culture, in life. See, this is not a good path to shake your fist at God, to, to eliminate God from the public square. This is danger for people. If you know it to be true, say it. We didn't make the rules of the universe, but we know the one who did. And like Paul, when we are ignored or blown off or disregarded, you're just a dumb backwards Christian, you're anti-science or whatever it is they say. Uh, yeah, you know you're not anti-science. You, you, you know the one who made it all. You know the one who, who made the rules of the science. You know that's not true. Well, should Paul have just shrunk back in his little thing and not given advice? Guys, eat. Guys, there's hope. Guys, there's encouragement. Uh, no. We keep coming. We keep saying lovingly. We keep being for people. If they're all dead uh, at the bottom of the sea, how can they then glorify God? He called on him to take courage, didn't he? Verses 21 through 26. Have hope. Take heart. My God, who I belong to, appeared to me and said, you will be fine. We're not going to lose anybody, just the ship. He called on them to stay together. Verses 27 through 32. And listen, isn't this just like human nature? It's like us. Fourteenth night had come. We were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. They took a sailing. There's 20 fathoms. There's 15 it says they thought we were going to run on the rocks. They let down the four anchors. They, do, they were doing everything that we do in a jam, everything we know to do to, to keep it alive. But then, then, verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, so what happened is the the, the soldiers that were guarding, they had to guard the prisoners. The sailors had nothing like that. They were just getting their salary. They knew what was coming. And so they acted like they were going to put the anchors down, but really they were putting the lifeboat down to sail away on it. And what did Paul say? Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, that lifeboat, and let it go. So the sailors were all there. Paul, even then, is, is, is giving a biblical principle Unity. Satan divides us. Jesus unifies us. You see a lot of people wanting to divide a lot of people and make us hate each other. 
What wickedness. In the Bible, there's no Jew nor Greek. There is no... Uh, you come to, come to Jesus, whoever comes. Doesn't matter what your race is, how much pigmentation you have in your skin or don't. Don't hate. Come to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God's family is made up of people from all over. Didn't God say to Abraham, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? Wasn't Paul all about taking this gospel to all the various people? And there's a strong urge today to make black people hate white people, and white people hate themselves or turn back. And everybody's trying to hate. Christians don't hate anybody. Don't hate based on anything, including pigmentation and skin. Boy, what we see now is, is I see a whole lot of hate over vax versus unvax. Some doctor says, boy, if you die and you don't get the vaccination, I'm not going to cry at your funeral. Then he dies after he gets the jab. And then people say, ha ha, serves him right. He's a hater. Hating him back. Don't hate. You make personal decisions. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So much is between you and God and your choice in God. It's not my business to come in and judge and elevate myself, whatever my decision is. But what I see deeper and bigger is people trying to drive a wedge, trying to make people hate. Paul says, no, we've got to stay together for us to physically stay alive. We need some soldiers. We need some people to row. We need some people when we do land to, to get some food. We need, need the sailors to get us there. Uh, remember this. Satan divides. God unifies. And if you're a Christian, you should seek to be one who unifies. He gave him practical advice. He says, eat food. Christians, sometimes the practical is the best. Sometimes somebody comes and what they need is not a bunch of Bible verses from my quote-unquote wisdom. They just need somebody to say, I'm going to pray for you that you get a good night's sleep. Uh, I'm going to help you out uh, with this newborn because you're battling these baby blues or this postpartum stuff. And maybe somebody from the church needs to come along and sit with you and help you out in a physical, practical way. Paul, Paul didn't say, uh, I'm a scholar of the Bible, and back here, this, 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 this. He says, no, guys, eat. You haven't eaten in 14 days. Eat, and you're going to feel better. And in the midst of giving that practical help, he talked about his God, and he prayed to God. He didn't say Jesus is the bread of life at that moment. He said, eat your bread. Somebody said about him, he combined spirituality with sanity and faith with words. Another one said, what a man. He was a man of God and action, a man of the spirit and of common sense. And I'm saying you do not have to choose between being heavenly minded and earthly good. It's the same thing. And you do what's appropriate at the time. All truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom. In this case, the wisdom was, guys, you're not going to make it if you don't eat. Eat. 
we've given some great news that God has promised to save his people and God did save his people. We've tied God's promise in with the greatest promise of salvation. We've made this analogy and I hopefully been challenged a little bit to see our role in this ship that we're sailing in called Earth until God comes to take us uh, to heaven. I want to remind you that God is not going to leave you in despair. God comes in crisis to his people and reassures them. I'm thinking of the angel of the Lord coming to Elijah under the juniper tree and feeding him and, and cooking for him and helping him in his moment of despair. He just gave him a good sleep and, and, and good food. In addition, working in conjunction with God's church, God speaks to you as you read and meditate on his word and as you pray. Uh, you wake up in the middle of the night in this despair, like Paul had his despair. And maybe when the temptation is to fret, because mine is, I woke up the other night and I heard Paul, I go, oh no. And I said, ooh, well, it was a deal about a yard thing. Uh, we think about things, we wake up, we think of things, and we stop. When you wake up and you're thinking of a situation in your life, you can pray something like this. Well, God, I don't have to tell you I'm worried about whatever it is, fill in the blank, because you know everything and your spirit dwells in me, so I can't hide it. Can I just talk with you about this, God, since we're both awake anyway? Will you help me, not even right now with some magical solution to my problem, but by reminding me that you are God and that you care about me? Is God going to treat you like the world sometimes treats you and blow you off when you approach him that way? No, he loves you. You're his daughter. You're his son. I think he'll be pleased to treat you with love and dignity and concern. First Peter tells us that we cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. We've been trying to tell the kids in youth group, what is, how does God respond when you pray? And we say the first thing God does is says, oh, that's so-and-so, that's, I use Caleb. Caleb's my chess buddy. We play chess each week, so I can use you, right? God's, when Caleb prays to God uh, about anything, God says, I love, that's my son Caleb. I love to hear Caleb's voice. Caleb's talking to me, and he is delighted to hear what Caleb has to say. You call out to God as his son or daughter. You pray to him. He loves to hear your voice. He loves the dialogue. He's God. You can talk to him about things that are, are, are big to you, even if they seem little to somebody else. And God gives you that reassurance. Cast your care on him, as Paul did, for he cares for you. And then I thought about this as we wrap this up. And I, I, I reread the text this morning. I got up early and, and just kind of read through the text and thought about it. And I saw something in an old Bible that I had written. And I said, I don't know why I didn't hammer on this, why this didn't latch in until now. But look at, look at verse 25. Yeah, we, Verse 25, when he's telling them to not be afraid. And he said, um, do not be afraid. God had said, uh, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then Paul said to them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The text talks about him not just being 
the text is a personal, like the God that I belong to. He's talking about, and he tells the men, I belong to God. It's not that God belongs to me, it's that I belong to God. If you've got an NIV or one of those texts, or even in the, in the Greek text, it, it brings that out. This very night, here's, here's a, a translation of it. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. The God to whom I belong. And, and I just want to say this. Sometimes we treat God as the God who belongs to us. Uh, well, it's personal faith. We talk about that. But really understand if he saved you, he's not the God who belongs to you. You are the one to, who belongs to God. There's a distinction, and it matters to say, I belong to God. Um, attended a funeral one time. And I'd done a lot of funerals in my day. Funerals started to catch up with the weddings. And I guess when I was at this funeral, I was disappointed because it was a person who died who had a vibrant faith in the Lord. And there were a lot of people there who didn't know the Lord, but they liked this person. As far as in a societal structure, uh, society would have looked at them compared to this man who died, and they would have said, they are above him in society. They probably earned 30 times, 100 times more than he did. But they respected him, and he died with grace and dignity. He even had told me, uh, pray for me with this illness that's overtaking me before it really gets me because I'm having a real door of opportunity to share the gospel with people. And here we are at this funeral. And I was sad. The more I was kicking myself and I was saying, did I do this at funerals? The person presiding over the funeral said, and now let's honor so-and-so by singing songs that he believed in. And it just made it almost like it was his personal faith and he was almost afraid to tell them, uh, you, if you want to see him again... <laughs> you better belong to the God he belongs to. And are we afraid sometimes to say, well, it's my faith. You have your faith. I have my faith. Well, we can say that, and I allow you to have your faith. But if truth is truth, if there is God, and if God makes a promise, there are also some promises that say, uh, if you don't know me as the Lord and Savior, you cannot come into heaven. You belong to Jesus if you're a Christian. Jesus paid for you. He ransomed you. He died for you. And this text brings out, and Paul was not afraid to people to say, well, I got this little magic Christianity thing going here, and, and so I'll do mine, you do yours, and all that. He says, no, the God to whom I belong. If you haven't for a while, think about God in those terms. You belong to God. Not that God belongs to you and you work him into your godlike life. You submit your life to the God to whom you belong. After we get to the table, we're going to sing a song, a closing song. Tito said he really likes this song. I do too. Uh, it's a song written, our, our closing hymn when we get there will be a song that was written by a man, uh, Spafford. Spafford was a businessman. He was relatively successful. He, he was a Presbyterian, but that didn't make him a Christian. But 
He happened to be a Presbyterian in those days. Liked D.L. Moody a lot and was part of, of seeing the, the, the gospel spread and people come to the Lord. Uh, Moody was going over to England. Uh, Spafford was sending his family ahead, and he was going to go along too. Uh, there was a big shipwreck, and uh, he had four daughters, beautiful names of those daughters. All four daughters died on the ocean before they could hop in a plane and fly. They all died. The wife survived. He had the news, and he was sailing over there anyway. And it was right at that spot where the ship went down that he wrote those words that we're going to sing, It is well with my soul. And he's talking about peace like a river ascending and, and things happening in the midst of it. In the midst of the storm of his life, how he could look to Jesus. Or as a song they taught us in Sunday school a long time ago used to say, with Christ in your vessel, you can smile at the storm. You take God as a promise-making God. You take God uh, when times are good. You take God in the midst of the storm and understand God's promises are true and there and with you. And let's close in prayer and go to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this incident that has been recorded for us. We thank you that we get to see you as a God who makes and keeps promises, even though from human perspective, sometimes they they look uh, like they're not going to be kept. But Lord, we thank you that you're the God who keeps promises and has shown us that. We thank you also, Lord, for showing us uh, an example of, of, of how you work through your people in the midst of calamity. And Lord, we thank you that you, uh, having saved us, you having, in your sovereignty, positioned us where you positioned us. And we pray, Lord, for grace and strength to speak words of comfort and calm and to help our, our fellow uh, travelers on this earth. And Lord, we don't know the end for everybody. We pray, Lord, we pray for, for people's salvation, for their souls. We pray for, for the things we do now in planting and watering uh, and you giving the increase. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your people who you've saved. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me.